Kudsir. Welcome to the second and hotly anticipated and I might say belated episode of Tales from Babushka's Bookshelf. The first ever English language Russian literary podcast with me, Sophie and my enormous reading list. Together we have endeavoured to um, wade through some of the most remarkable works of literature beginning in the 19th century. However, I will say that this week my seminars have started at UC Berkeley, including a seminar on 18th century literature, and there is a temptation to go all the way back because I think there's going to be some gems in the in the previous century, so to speak. However, we soldier on, and today there is a double bill for this podcast, which I'm hoping that you'll appreciate. In the last episode, we were introduced to Nikolai Vasilievich Gogol, and I promised more from him for this episode. And I've decided to group together two of his most important works, which, as a couple, reveal more about Gogol, both as a playwright, as an author, and as a man. The two texts that we explore today, The Government Inspector and Dead Souls, in Russian, Revizor and Njortve Dushi, were, as the critic Prince Mirsky has discussed, considered to offer a satire of the society within which Gogol lived, carrying with them, and I quote, a great message of social and moral regeneration. This, however, as Mirsky argued, was a misapprehension, and rather within these works was not objective but subjective satire. His characters were introspective caricatures of the fauna of his own mind. Rivizor and Dead Souls were satires of self, and of Russia and mankind only insofar as Russia and mankind reflected that self. I think Mirsky's comments are intriguing because these two works are so generically different, with one being a play and one a novel, that it seems curious to compare the ways in which they present interiority. After all, when I read this commentary, I thought, could it really be that Gogol was able to offer a form of self-presentation through such different forms? Themes present within both texts are ambition, avarice and deception, both of the self and of others. Whilst in The Government Inspector, the principal character, Hlistakov, is almost so delusional that he doesn't set out, perhaps, to deceive anyone, Dead Souls Chichikov is actively duplicitous, hiding his intentions for the Dead Souls from the various people that he seeks to buy them from. I would not be the first to call Divisor, the government inspector, a comedy of errors in some sense. It was begun in 1835, published in 1836, and revised in 1842. Revisor was considered to have been inspired by Alexander Sergeyevich Pushkin, and even by a case in which Pushkin himself was mistakenly identified. The legend goes, and right now I'm not totally sure, but rumour has it that Gogol had asked Alexander Sergeyevich Pushkin um, for a purely Russian anecdote for Pushkin to provide him with some kind of hook on which to write a hilarious play. 
This was not the first play that Gogol had written. He had before him already The Gamblers, Marriage, and an unfinished work called Vladimir of the Third Class. Um, Gogol had purportedly written to ask for this comedy inspiration alongside um, asking or receiving for the inspiration for Dead Souls, which we'll get to in a moment. What is particularly interesting about the play is that it was conceived of and begun during a period of geographical and thematic transition in Gogol's oeuvre, when he moved away from what some call his Ukrainian tales or Ukrainian period towards works that centre on St. Petersburg. And this was written around the same time as Nyevsky Presbyakt, Zapiski Sumashedsheva, The Diary of a Madman, and The Nose, Norse. As a play itself, um, Rivzor straddles the opposing spaces of province and capital. Its eponymous protagonist, who remains mostly concealed, hails from St. Petersburg, as does the man mistaken for him, Hlestakov, and both are endowed with the power to make judgments on the state of affairs further afield. The play comprises five acts and has an epigraph from Russian folklore, meaning, don't blame the mirror if you're ugly. We'll try and figure out why this is the epigraph later on, once we have a slight better understanding of the plot. The play begins with the mayor, his entourage, and by extension the spectator, anticipating the arrival of a government inspector, who was reported to be arriving in town incognito. The mayor is open with his entourage that he takes bribes, which he hopes his firm faith in God balances out in a kind of orthodox karma. Hearing from townspeople that a young man, or chinovnik, has appeared purportedly on his way to Saratov, staying at the inn for a second week and reluctant to pay for anything, all are convinced that this Hlistakov must be the inspector. Indeed, Hlistakov is himself convinced of his own singularity and of the fact that he deserves the lavish gifts and attention offered to him gradually by the townspeople. Although even this delusional figure is surprised at the extent of the feasting, um, asking, Really? Does this happen every day? Although he is a collegiate assessor and thus a relatively low rank, Hlistakov talks mendaciously of his acquaintance with the Petersburg elite, including with Alexander Sergeyevich Pushkin. In a very metatheatrical moment, Hlistakov, who is a total liar, says that um, theatre companies in St. Petersburg actually asked him to write plays and he talks extensively about his own clarity of thought and erudition. What is remarkable is that when he's asked to write plays, he suddenly claims that he discovered a talent for writing. And this is significant because it's reflective of the relationship between himself and the townspeople who cast him as their inspector. He assumes the role that is offered to him, and his assertion that he is the real person behind a pseudonymous talented writer again confounds in a way that brings literature to the fore. Listakov is consistently invited to all of the wonderful salons in town, although they are obviously not comparable to the sophistication of the St. Petersburg salons, but 
he meets with the mayor's wife and his lies continue. This time he lies about his social status and his home and again there is something very curious. He punctuates his speech with a rhetorical reflexive question meaning what am I saying but literally meaning what am I lying about and this again is a kind of slippage of the mask. He's always indicating he isn't really who he's taken to be. The speech is also ironic because the omnipotence and omnipresence that Khlistakov falsely claims to have within Petersburg high society, this idea of being so in demand, so revered, is at the smaller scale of the town genuinely possessed by Garodnichny, the mayor, who demands bribes from everyone that surrounds him, as well as reverence. When Khlistakov learns of the corruption of the mayor from some local merchants who wish to denounce him, to the central authorities, he himself is quick to share in their condemnation, despite his own delusional behaviour being very similar. You have these two power maniacs, essentially. But what distinguishes Hlistakov from the mayor is perhaps his admission, both to his servant Oysim and in a letter that is read in the fifth act, that manipulation and deception are not sustainable in the longer term. Indeed, after he has taken a considerable number of bribes and promised to bring the issue of the mayor's monopoly to justice, Flistakov tells the mayor that he must leave for a few days, when indeed he has no intention to come back, acknowledging privately the impossibility of remaining false to himself and the townspeople. He tells the mayor that he plans to return and marry his daughter with whom he has fallen in love, despite simultaneously flirting with her mother, the mayor's wife. Uh, this does certainly confirm that Glistakov is indeed a scoundrel, despite having a degree of moral superiority over the mayor. I don't want to spoil the ending of the play, particularly because there are so many wonderful productions of Government Inspector to this day in Russian and English, but I will say that there's a kind of rendering of justice at the end, and the ending itself is structurally concordant with the beginning of the play. Although a comedy in most respects, elements of the tragic are peppered throughout, and at times the implied spectator is implicitly asked to question the transience of life, and of the meaning of an individual's existence within a hierarchical, unforgiving society. One moment in particular defines this, and it has been singled out by scholars of the work, who see within it competing impulses. Here it goes. The rather bumbling Bobchinsky, this is me paraphrasing, asks the man he presumes to be the inspector, Hlistakov, to tell the officials in St. Petersburg that he lived in the town that is subject to the inspection. Just to tell them that this person, Bobchinsky, existed. With this request, he at once announces both the dissonance between provincial and urban life and the universal desire for recognition. I think what I enjoyed most about the play and what makes it unique is this universality. And this is echoed in the final act by the mayor who asks what everyone is laughing about. Meaning, what are you laughing at? You're laughing at yourselves. And he asks if the implied spectator themselves 
is as duped as well as disgraced as he has been. This tension between complicity and self-criticism brings us quite neatly to the novel half of this episode, to Dead Souls. Uh, okay, Miotre Dushi, Dead Souls. Dead Souls, for me, has always seemed like an intimidating text. Despite having read Gogol's shorter Petersburg tales and being familiar with their levity and their humour, for some reason the ominous title of Dead Souls and its ubiquity in conversations about 19th century Russian literature made me mentally ascribe it um, a generic loftiness that really it doesn't have. And what's better, it's a compelling, witty and accessible book which, by its structure, manages to create suspense and surprise out of a relatively logical plot. Scholars have debated whether Gogol came close to his goal of emulating Dante's divine comedy in writing Dead Souls, and certainly one aspect in which Dead Souls failed to meet its author's intentions or expectations for it is that it was never completed. Gogol had set out to write three volumes, or parts, to it, but succeeded only in completing the first, which was finished and published in 1842, and leaving behind several redactions of part two. Whilst many scholars have called the work a picaresque novel, generically there's actually a lot of ambiguity when it comes to dead souls. Gogol had put on the original title page the word bayama, which means poem or epic poem in some sense, and certain scholars have argued that, although it's written in prose, the elements of adventure and its associativeness, as well as the richness of its imagery and the singularity of language, does support this idea of it being poetry. Uh, Mikhail Mikhailovich Bakhtin famously called uh, the language Kokalen, which essentially means random, nyusiazny, totally strange language. Um, 1836, a year in which Gogol was really revising his initial conception of the work, is when he first calls it a poema, and in a letter to Zhukovsky, the poet, describes his wish really for dead souls to capture some kind of essential Russianness, saying, All of Rus, which is kind of, again, a very thorny um, idea, but for shorthand, we'll say old Russia, appears in it. We can perhaps see, as scholars have done, an interesting um, tension between Dead Souls as a poem in prose and Pushkin's 1832 Yevgeny Onegin, Eugene Onegin, which we will return to, um, which was subtitled Roman Stichach, a novel in verse. Here we have a poem in prose. And there we had a novel in verse. If we think about the idea of the picaresque, certainly there's evidence that Gogol was influenced by the genre, which emerged in Spain in the 16th century with Lazario de Tormes, and typically has at its centre a rascal rogue. However, Pavel Ivanovich Chichikov, the hero of Gogol's poem, is not the typical picaro since he's noble to a degree, a collegiate assessor, 
And since his perspective is narrated in the third person rather than the first person. His roguishness is indeed apparent, but it's extremely calculated, and despite the episodic nature of his adventures, he does not once really lose the thread of purchasing the dead souls. There is a certain um, characterological continuity in that respect. And so, to the dead souls, because as I have mentioned, this is a rather ominous concept until you know what's going on. Chichikov has discovered that serfs who have died are mostly still accounted for on the imperial revision lists, which is like a census, and thus that the landowners that have possession of them are responsible um, for them bureaucratically. Chichikov has also discovered that if the government records state that a certain serf is still alive, then they can be as if mortgaged to the state for money. And the borrowing of money against dead serfs presumed to be alive is the central economic premise of Chichikov's scheming and of the dead souls. And so it begins with Chichikov arriving at the anonymous town of NN and almost immediately being accepted into the higher echelons of its society, particularly after he attends a party at the governor's house. We learn at the end of the first chapter about the utmost positive reputation established by Chichikov, and the narrative persona ends this chapter with a subtle and suspenseful allusion to the eventual erosion of this reputation, saying that the high opinion of Chichikov and his quotes remained until one small habit of the guest and enterprise, or as they say in the provinces, passage, about which the reader will soon learn, made almost the entire town entirely perplexed. Chichikov begins visiting local landowners in order to proposition them for the purchase of dead souls. The first is Manilov, described as bland, passionless, and mildly unpleasant. He, however, is described ex as extremely expressive after hearing about Chichikov's request, and he can hardly believe that the educated and mild-mannered man before him is serious about buying dead souls. Nevertheless, Manilov does agree to sign a deed a few days later, although he won't take any payment. And until that's signed, Chichikov goes on his way, making for the estate of Sobakevich. However, he does get delayed on the way and he encounters Karobochka, the landlady of a country inn. And he also concludes a deal with her, although she tries to barter with him to buy up her dead souls. Nazdryov is another landowner whom Chichikov meets on his travels, but he's less amenable to direct negotiation and instead offers to play drafts as a way of winning souls. Realising the trickery of his opponent, Chichikov goes on his way once again. And hence we do have this kind of wandering, wandering figure, which is perhaps why the picaresque comes in. He eventually does arrive at Sabakevich's house, and Chichikov is treated to a most wonderful meal, but through some kind of merging of free and direct thought and narrative omniscience, we learn that the physical features of Sabakevich make it seem as though he has no soul. And it's actually a moment where Chichikov goes from being perhaps a frightening one to himself a little bit startled. For a long time, Sobakevich barters with Chichikov before he agrees to make a deal 
to sell some souls. Chichikov's final meeting is with Plushkin. And there are lots of rumours going around the town that Plushkin mistreats his serfs very badly, to the extent that many of them have perished. Plushkin is miserly, and Chichikov is able to buy not only dead souls, but runaway serfs, who have fled the poor conditions of Plushkin's estate. Chichikov is very wily, and he claims to Plushkin that he's taking pity on him by buying these souls. Now, when Chichikov attempts to make these transactions, um, as well as when other townspeople, in addition to the bureaucratic officials and chief of police, learn of his enterprise, he claims that he is transferring the souls to Kherson province. This gesture of relocating serfs and buying lots of local serfs is celebrated and it does seem for a while that he's gotten away with it. However, at a ball, Nazdryov tells the public prosecutor that Chichikov had tried to buy dead souls from him. Now, he says this very lovingly, but he's more surprised that Chichikov is now able to buy lots of alive souls, serfs, um given that he'd previously bartered with him. And there's a kind of friendly reproach. Nazdrov really says that he's taken to Chichikov. Then some rumours spread that some kind of shift in the attitude towards Chichikov as the crowd realises they don't really know who he is. Uh, is he trying to elope with the governor's daughter? Is he, and this is a very long internal anecdote. Captain Kapekin, who is this kind of shady military man who went missing, in essence, lots of figures come out of the woodwork corroborating the idea that Chichikov is buying up dead souls and others have entirely far-fetched ideas, conspiracy theories even, about who he really is. And so eventually Chichikov conspires to leave alongside his valet Selifan. The Unconcluded Part 2 cycles back, so it kind of goes against chronology, and we suddenly are afforded an insight into Chichikov's childhood, what happened to him, why, how he began his life, and how he ended up being in a position to try to get credit from pawning dead souls. Um, now that we understand the plot of the novel in greater detail, and I'm not really going to go any further into the part two because it's disputed whether we should include it or not by scholarship, um, but we can speak a little about the novel's form as a whole. There are throughout the text, and particularly at the beginning of chapters, what in the Russian canon are called lyrichiski adduplenia, or lyrical interludes, within which the narrator reveals more about his identity um, and offers some kind of context to the Russian provincial landscape that's depicted. This is a third-person narrator, but um, he's endowed with his own subjectivity. He's not uh, totally impartial. Um, 
To some degree, there is a correlation between these interludes and the plot of the chapters themselves. They offer a kind of background against which the events unfold, although the narrative persona is removed from Chichikov's story and from the frame of the events, or what we might call a diegesis. Um, the very beginning, or predislovia, forward to Dead Souls, contains an admission of the infidelity of some of the details. Uh, and this is interesting because here we actually cannot say with certainty whether that is the same narrative persona as the one in the subsequent novel, or whether this is some kind of figurative, imaginary conception of Gogol himself. Um, it's all rather layered. Um, but what's interesting within the text is that it's so colourful in its description of the people in NN, in its genuine economic viability, as people have indicated. This, this could really have happened, this may even have happened its combination of what seems to be a morally instructive tale about a rogue with a morally dubious narrator who talks about whether the ladies who live in N are pretty, he makes innuendos, he's often interrupting, he isn't telling the story straight um, as conceptually we might expect. And again, the idea of the second part, although it's unfinished, returning to an earlier time is an interesting temporal device. If we go back to Mirsky's allegation that the novel is more of a, an internal satire, satire of self for Gogol, what does it mean? For the town to be not given a proper name, why is there that concealment if this is fictitious? And another clue, um, or a distancing gesture, depending on how you interpret it, is in the foreword, the description of the hero. Um, it's written, Взят он больше за тем, чтобы показать недостатки и пороки русского человека, а не его достоинства и добродетели. И все люди, которые окружают его, взяты также за тем, чтобы показать наши слабости и недостатки. So he's taken, most of all, to show the weaknesses and sins of the Russian person rather than his achievements and kind acts. And all of the people that surround him are taken rather to show our weaknesses and our defects. Um, and again, the allusion to Dante comes after this. Lucia Ludzi Charatri Buddha Drugitchista. Better people and characters will be in the following parts, but they obviously didn't materialize. Uh, but if this is about a universal Ruski Chilevik, Russian person, why is it so specific and 
Why is there this distancing? Is this distancing in order to show part of the self, as Mirsky is suggesting? Although I hesitate to do any kind of historicist reading or psychological reading, of course not. I'm not trying to diagnose Gogol's own process. However, this does provide a counterpoint to seeing this as a purely um, morally didactic work because that in itself is an illusion. The narrator also describes himself as the historian of the events that are presented. And again, <clears throat> what makes Gogol so singular is this blurring of the boundaries of the documentary and of the fictional. And so I think to conclude this episode, both of these works are inviting us to engage with this theme of mistaken identity or identity theft, but in much more than uh, merely thematic terms. This is not a question of who fooled whom, but rather, as a reader, what are our expectations of the veracity, rather the internal veracity of a novel? What kind of reliability do we expect? What kind of modes of revelation do we expect? What is the purpose of theatre, if not artifice and spectacle? And how different is that artifice and spectacle from the constructed and discursively constructed identities that we claim as our own. Where does the difference truly lie between the actor that pretends to be Klistakov, Klistakov that pretends to be the darling of St. Petersburg, and the mayor who does not articulate but through violence or suggested violence and manipulation claims his own status as superior. Generically, where is our investment in a novel as opposed to a play? And is there a narrowing of our interest in a character simply because a novel is concentrated on them? And at the end of the day, can we even call Dead Souls a novel? I'll leave you with all of these questions and next week we will be diving in to Pushkin. Do свидания!